Alrighty, if you want to gather in, we will kick off one of the most difficult days for the audience and also for the speaker. So, Thursday has a way of being even more difficult than Wednesday. You've got all the week building up. I know a few things about a few people, so we will make sure that we try to bring this to you with energy, with clarity, which is key. And hopefully that it will sink in and give us context to what's happening today. And so uh, I want to continue with our agenda, so to speak, of giving you as much evidence as possible, uh, and that is hand-in-hand with Scripture. And what our, what our viewpoint is, is we're not looking at modern-day events and going, okay, how do we come back and now maybe alter our framework? It is exactly the opposite. Do contemporary events fit our framework? And I think that is the key order of things. So we establish the framework scripturally, and then we watch, as watches are supposed to do, if modern events uh, and contemporary events are fitting that scheme. And along the way, we test that scheme. But that is the order that we try to see if things fit into the framework. The other is a reactionary, and I think we can get into trouble fairly quickly. Now, I mentioned that um, you know, early on in the week, the Jews would return to the land, as we've seen in 48, but they would return in unbelief. And I think this is a uh, case in point that expresses some of that mindset. These are the words of Ben-Gurion at the establishment of the state in 48. Always ye shall demand of the world was justly ours. But morning and evening, day in and day out, we must remind ourselves that our existence, our freedom, and our future are in our own hands, our own exertions, our own capacity, and our own will. They are the key. So, this is the mindset and the disposition in much of Israel, not all, because we're looking for that remnant, this resurgence of Zionism, and we are seeing that. It's predominantly in a younger generation. Uh, In fact, you will, and you look at some of the rallies that are being called at the Western Wall, it's a group primarily of teenagers. Uh, and 100,000 will come out. They'll call each other on the cell phones. Uh, we see a lot of desire that's uh, coming up to return to the land. And sometimes you ask these Jews that are going back, why are you coming back? I just need to be there. I just need to be there. And so we look for this, uh, this Zionist, Uh, entity starting to come up. We know that in the end, part of that result is going to inflame the nations round about. The controversy of Zionism uh, as a political uh, and and, uh, religious entity. And I believe that this is the contingency that when they do witness Christ, that is the final piece for them to make that connection. Now, We're looking at the Middle East. We looked yesterday strategically if you want to invade a country to affect the Middle East, it's Iraq because of all the reasons. It borders Saudi Arabia all the way around. If you can change a mindset or a political system or religious system to a lesser degree in Iraq, the trickle-down effect going out in all directions is your best shot of making an impact. And this is, in fact, what the U.S. and Britain have done. Now, Iran, we know, is Persia. They are not to change their antagonistic position. They are to be allied with Gog in his invasion. So it's fitting that we're kind of seeing a stalemate here. Not a lot of movement in terms of getting their their weapons and their armaments and their inspections and things. Uh, We're at a standoff. Now the attention is turning back to Syria, which is very much isolated. You know, Turkey is an antagonist to Syria. They're not allies. Of course, you have the U.S. and Britain and Iraq. You have Jordan, which is very much allied, uh, as we will prove, uh, with the United States, uh, even though they have a very large Palestinian contingency within the borders. Saudi Arabia is neutral. Why is Saudi Arabia neutral? Well, first of all, they don't want the Shiite uh, spillover from Iran into Iraq to start coming down into Sunni Saudi Arabia. So... Uh, We have a lot of things that are being mixed, and really the thing to keep in the back of your mind is leverage. And this is how the kingdoms of men work. You know, it isn't peace because they like one another, it's coerced. It's absence of conflict. You know, 
Saudi Arabia, to get you to do what I need you to do from a U.S. perspective, you're going to lay low and do such and such. Otherwise, we're going to give more of the government to the Shiites. If you want to participate in this, then this is how you're going to have to, this is how you're going to, have to act. If you want us not to dump cheap oil on the market and destroy your economy, which depends on oil being over $25 a barrel, you better pay attention. That's the only way you get cooperation in the kingdoms of men. It's pressure. It's leverage. It's coercion. So when I talk about a temporary peace, it's on that basis. Coercion, pressure, and leverage. It's not because people like each other. Now, we know that in light of today's events, the Iran-Persia uh, area will be an ally of, God, ally of God, so the attempts to rein her in will be futile, and this is what we're seeing today. Now, I want to back up just a little bit, because we do want to talk about Syria today, because I think it's an interesting position. We'll look more closely here towards the end of the class at the prophecy specifically uh, dealing with her in Isaiah 17. Now, here's from a Depka report, July 6, 2005. So what I'm trying to give you is very, very current information for you to filter through. Quote, Bush is set on toppling Bashar Assad and the Syrian Ba'ath Party as well. U.S. Republican conservative Richard Pearl said the Bush administration is as determined to overthrow Bashar Assad's Ba'athist regime in Damascus as he was to oust the Ba'athist Party of Iraq. We're seeing this in the revolution in Lebanon, are we not? Now, what happened in Lebanon? Well, Syria pulled out all of its military troops now, of course, their intelligence agencies are still in there mucking it up, uh, etc. But when you look at... I'll just have to fast forward here. Well, we'll get to it in a second. Consider all of the, quote-unquote, westernized uh, nations that are leaving former alliances. You can think of Georgia, Ukraine, Poland, Czechoslovakia... Uh, you know, others are on the docket. Kyrgyzstan is one um, that's uh, also as well over here. Lebanon, uh, Iraq, and formerly, what were all these states? Soviet states, were they not? So the Ukraine provides 25% of all food to Russia. If any state uh, or former state is Russian or Soviet, it was that one. So, either this is a ruse to see Europe kind of come together, or we have enough of an antagonist, antagonistic uh, encroachment upon former Russian states uh, and proxy states that eventually Russia is going to have to say, enough. You're eroding away our influence here, here. You're putting pressure here and isolating another big proxy state. All of the satellite states around the Russian nation proper, um, and you wonder how much more they can accept in terms of having all of these former nations of influence leave their fold, so to speak. Now, a fundamental question here to be asked is, how do the Elohim operate? Because this isn't happening, as in any historical event, just outside of the realm of divine control. I mean, God rules in the kingdoms of men. He sets up kings and he removeth kings. We have to be on board that this is divinely directed. So, you know, not every single conference, not every single speech, but the end result of nations being shaped. This is what the Elohim do. Case in point, how do they operate? Look to Daniel 13, uh, 10, 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now, this is from Mansfield's uh, expositor. It, he says, quote, It had taken the angel 21 days to arrange the political world so as to bring the policy of Persia in, into conformity with Yahweh's purpose, for which Daniel had been praying. And in fact, it tells us specifically that we should be praying for the return of Messiah, earnestly. And as a secondary uh, aspect of that, we are praying for God to facilitate the kingdoms of men to move his kingdom forward and the second advent of his son quickly. In order to accomplish this, circumstances had to be rearranged so that the prince of Persia would voluntarily act in a certain matter. 
It was in this year that the, that the decree of Cyrus took place. Thus, quote, God rules in the kingdoms of men, from chapter 417. Through the silent maneuvering by the Elohim of events and people in power. Now, you can only imagine, uh, and I think it's a valid imagination to go, the Elohim affected Arafat's mind to decline 98% of the West Bank. I mean, if you're a military strategist and you truly want to destroy Israel, you'll say, sure, I'll take 98% now, I'll fill it with my troops and arm all of my people, and then I'll battle for the, the last 2%. Or I'll take this land now and do the same type of strategy later. This is our land. It may take me another 20 years, but I got 90, 98% of it today. I mean, it was handed to him on a silver platter, yet he rejected it. We cannot always see the divine manipulations, or excuse me, we cannot always see the, the manipulations of divine hands among the nations, although we understand the ultimate divine purpose with the earth and mankind. As we know from Amos 3.7, Surely the Lord will do nothing, but He revealeth, which means uncovers, His secret, which means confidential plans, unto His servants the prophets. So we have a window, like Revelation says, to take the lid off, to uncover, and see these confidential plans to a fairly specific level. That we may not... Uh, that we may not comprehend the divine scheme in all its detail, we're not going to in every specific timeline and aspect, but they are able to perceive the development of these plans and be strengthened thereby. It is very likely that the agitations of Al-Qaeda, starting in the Clinton era, no Mogadishu, bin Laden's declaration of war on the U.S. in 1996, the 9-11 attacks, we look at the ships of Tarshish, you know, all this in present day history, the last hundred years, were the work of the Elohim. And why would we as believers summarize it any other way? Because what you have to summarize, if it's not divine hand, is this is all chance. Now try to connect your faith to that type of perspective. It's, it's chance, it's not really guided and directed. That, it's a total disconnect. That's not how our faith connects with the divine workings of the Almighty. I show you these things that you might believe is the essence of prophecy. Now, the, the witnessing of fulfilled prophecy, I believe, is one of the single most effective motivators for one's faith. If the things concerning the kingdom of God are taken away from the name of Jesus Christ, then I believe we only have half the gospel in its revelation. We have the moral teachings, uh, we have the ideals, but we have no purpose, purpose or context for it. What's the point of being uh, brotherly if there's no reward or purpose for it? You know, at some point you kind of run out of gas. He's not being receptive to what I'm trying to do in order to be a good person uh, under the commandments of Christ. For what? You know, the kingdom... I mean, I'm not trying to make this too selfish, but there is a purpose. There is a context. And this prophetic kingdom aspect is part of that. So we balance it. So, continuing forward here. Because the next big area that we're moving into is how does Israel dwell in peace and safety prior to Messiah's coming? You know, how is that possible? We're going to look at the security fence. We're going to look at armed checkpoints, uh, carrying guns in malls, etc. We're going to go, is that peace and safety? I mean, are we missing something here? We'll look at that. Now, this particular development throws many Christadelphians a curve. We look at the state of Israel today. We observe the security fence, checkpoints, soldiers positioned at every key crossing, uh, malls, etc. The constant attacks by the Palestinians, Hamas, etc. And we conclude, how can this comply with the state described in Ezekiel 38? And here's a section of it. The divergence of opinion or interpretation here presents a critical juncture or fork in the road that we need to resolve. On the one hand, we look to the Arabs around about as the aggressors that takes the nation of Israel to the brink of destruction, which is the time of Jacob's trouble, a degree of trouble never experienced in history by the nation of Israel, or since a time as never was, Christ, and then Christ returns in glorious and dramatic manifestation to the world 
as it says in Matthew 24, 30-31. And you can just follow along with that, because what I'm trying to say is, let's look at this and other verses and say, what do we conclude here? Because independently, if you're just going to take Matthew 24, and to a certain degree Matthew 25, uh, 31 and 32, you go, Messiah returns with his angels in dramatic fashion to Jerusalem to redeem Israel from the Arab nations round about. That is the issue that we are looking at right now. So, chapter 24, 30 to 31. And then shall, and then, excuse me, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And actually backing up to 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and they shall, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And just reading here again. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now the interpretation here requires that the coming with the clouds of heaven must be taken literally. Jesus will be seen by the world in splendid physical glory, the Shekinah glory of old. Judgment takes place after Christ and the angels, not the saints, redeem Israel from the Arabs. For Christ is sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, according to the interpretation, quote, Jesus comes in all his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. So from this we conclude that the morning tribes, these morning tribes must mean the prophecies of Zechariah chapters twelve through fourteen have been fulfilled. Christ has already entered in, he's on his throne, he's staying there. He has redeemed them from the Arabs round about. Peace and safety now emerges, which entices God to come down to the land of unwalled villages. Brothers and sisters, it does have logic to it, does it not? But we need to dig a little bit deeper and reconcile it with the rest of Scripture to see what is the true sequence of things for Christ's return. Because now we have some conflict. What are we to do with the verses that Christ's return first is as a thief to the world? Not in dramatic fashion to Jerusalem, but first as a thief. That is from Revelation 16.15. And blessed is he that watcheth. The message that some will be caught unawares. And now we're into the point with how do we reconcile that judgment takes place in Sinai? So if Christ returns with angels to Jerusalem, is judgment then moved back down to Sinai? Is there a vacancy and a void in the land right after it has been redeemed? That doesn't, that doesn't connect. Now let's look at Psalm 68.17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. Okay, Deuteronomy 33. And this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and rose from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Paran, this is all in the south, and Sinai and Seir, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Now, we know Israel, leaving uh, Egypt and in the Exodus, had to go around Mount Seir, Correct? Not from it. And these 10,000 saints were not the children of Israel. And as we saw from Psalms, Christ is accompanied with 20,000 chariots. Let's look to Habakkuk 3 and continue to look at this. This is a very prophetic chapter. And starting with verse 3. And really you can read... 3 through 16. God came from Teman, again, that's in the south, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. 
and his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. You know, this is that strength. Uh, horns is indicative of power, strength. Um, you know, in a lesser uh, analogy, we think of Moses' face. If you look at those rays, it's shown like horns coming out of his face. We know that the children of Israel could not bear that because that symbolically represented Christ. Because, as you see in Corinthians, to this day they still read the law with a veil over. That's the linkage there. They could not see Christ in the law. Therefore, in symbology, they asked Moses to cover it up by covering his face with a veil. So back to verse 4. And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. When you think of the multitudinous man and the feet as uh, fired brass, I mean, these are some of the things we need to link together here. Pestilence, judgments, fire going forth from him. Uh, As it says in Revelation, he spoke as a voice with many waters. This is a multitudinous aspect, and I believe we need to get our minds around that. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth and beheld... And in earth, he beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushion and affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? We know that rivers have been indicative of peoples and powers. And thine anger against the rivers uh, was thy wrath against the sea. And thou dost ride upon the horses and the chariots of salvation. Who are the horses and chariots? Again, we have a consistent linkage. The immortalized saints are indicative of this cherubim vehicle that Christ rides and directs. Let's keep going. Was the Lord displeased again? Excuse me, verse 9. The bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word. Selah, thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. Mountains are also indicative of nations and powers. We know that the kingdom of God will become a, the great mountain after it destroys the image. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst, thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people. That's the purpose of this march this movement of this company, of these troops. This is for the salvation and the deliverance of Israel, who is what? In distress. She cannot rely upon the strength of her own hand. That has been demolished. She has nothing left but to cry to her God. And here is why this immortalized host, this multitudinous Christ, begins this march for that deliverance. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Again, that company is with him. Thou woundest the head of the house of the wicked. Well, this brings us right back to Genesis 3.15, does it not? By discovering the foundation unto the neck. And I would purport to you that the foundation would be the feet to the neck of the image. Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. I think that you can refer to Gog in that. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses. Again, a uh, relation to uh, the cherubim, the immortalized host. The heap of great waters. When I heard, my belly trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble when he cometh up unto the people he will invade them with his troops now let's keep going let's keep reading verses as I've been mentioning here the symbolic man of Christ comes from Teman and before him went the pestilence and burning coals went forth at his feet these are symbols of destructive power thou didst march through the land in indignation thou didst thresh the heathen in anger Thou wentest for the salvation of thy people. Christ with the saints defeat the Gogian host. And really, brothers and sisters, this is the true meaning of coming with the clouds of heaven. I mean, I would encourage you at least to do that study before you dismiss it. 
There is tremendous symbology in individual droplets put together as an entire cloud before you just gloss over and say that must be literal clouds. Do yourself uh, a favor and at least study it out. Because then you look at those verses in Matthew and you go, okay, I understand when this happens. This is Christ and the saints coming from Sinai, where judgment is, from Seir, from Paran, from Teman, down in the south, coming for the salvation of His people with an immortalized host, which begs the question, does it not? Judgment has already happened. You see, to be caught unawares before the Gagan invasion, judgment must happen to start to immortalize this household. That's why judgment for us could happen at any time. And in this time of Laodicea, it is perfect timing for Christ to come back and catch many asleep. And the world is not going to know right off the bat that He's returned. You know, if you look at these regions in Sinai, and uh, I would give credibility to the new study that, you know, you're uh, kind of in southern Saudi Arabia is a very likely place. It's a very remote and desolate uh, and very uh, harsh area that could easily be hidden. Bottom line is, God has no trouble hiding anything. So if He desires... Uh, etc. But these verses compel us to understand the place, the sequence, and the travel, and who is with him. Let's continue. The reward of the saints to fight with Christ. Look at Psalms 149. Now, just because we have the engagement of the immortalized saint in this battle of Armageddon, to redeem Israel does not discount the future use of natural Israel, that preserved remnant, to be the battle axe of the Almighty. Let the saints be joyful in their glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and the two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute upon them the judgment written, This honor have all the saints. Praise ye the Lord. When you look at king and priest aspect in Romans 5, or excuse me, Revelation 5.10, there are two aspects to uh, reigning as a king and a priest. Now also, all nations are gathered together against Israel as we can... Uh, Thoroughly back up with Scripture, I believe. Start with uh, Micah 4, 11 through 12. Because what this argument that we're presenting to you is countering is that it's just the Arabs roundabout. Joel, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Micah demand that we have this Gogian host more than just Arabs. Now, a quick caveat, which I'll jump forward here there will be what's called Arab pylon. There's a precedent for that. But they're not the main story. And really, even when you break it down, and I'll do this for you, in terms of military capability, they don't have the capability. Now, what if a suitcase bomb goes off in Israel and kills 100,000 people? And Hamas says, we're going to do another one. And Israel goes, what are your terms for surrender? Well, take your troops and march all your people to the sea. That's the terms of surrender for Israel, is it not? So what are you going to do if you're the leader of Israel? You fight to the last man. Is that not correct? And then you have to go, okay, after the biological weapon goes off, and we're thinking, worst case scenario, uh, you kill 100,000 people, you kill 200,000 people. What do you as Israel do? You obliterate Gaza in probably an hour. You obliterate Damascus in probably two hours. And then what? It probably stops. Yes, you've lost 250,000 people. But are you going to surrender? Are they going to march their tanks across from Gaza? They don't have tanks. You know, Syria's army is in worse shape than Saddam's was. Are they going to march across the Golan? No, it's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. They don't have the capacity, even in the literal world, to be able to destroy Israel completely. And you have to come to grips with that. 
Now, will, will there be a skirmish with the Arabs around about? Yes, I believe you're going to see one very shortly with the Palestinians. But Israel's going to win. I think we're going to see, as we're going to look at Isaiah 17, a skirmish with uh, Damascus, with Syria. But Israel's going to win. And she may not be completely involved with that one, but Syria's going to be humbled, the ruin of Damascus. Will that inflame Europe and the rest of the world? Absolutely. So, we need to put these things together. Now, do we expect an, an Arab pylon if they can file behind a conqueror, just like the precedent was set in Babylonian times? Absolutely. Those Arabs, namely the Palestinian Arabs, will readily pile on with God to destroy Israel. But the Arabs will not be the main story. Here's the precedence. The Bible tells of Edom's and the Philistines' perpetual conflict and bloodshed against Israel. Jacob lived in fear of his life from Edom. David from the Philistines and Solomon the Edomites. And they were plagued by the Edomite king Hadad and Jehoshaphat too. They were constantly attacked by the Edomites who were in effect the ringleaders of opposition to Israel. Later on, the Edomites connived with king, uh, the king of Babylon when he came to conquer Israel, cheering them on, as it were, in the awful mission to capture the Jews, destroy the temple, and to burn the city of Jerusalem to the ground in 587 B.C. The Psalms recalls this event when in Psalms 137, he pleads with the Lord for judgment upon evil Edom. Quote, Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. Edom and the Philistines of that day did pile on against Israel, but they were not the main story. Babylon was. In the latter day, many Arabs round about will pile on with Gog, but they will not be the main story, for Gog is. Now, back to our point with all nations round about, because this is what we're talking about. Let's get back to our Micah verse, Micah 4, and we're looking at 11 through 12. Says this. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion, the controversy of Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Look at Joel 2. Sorry. Chapter 3, verse 2. And I will also gather all nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. This is that battle that God is gathering them to. And will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Let's also look at Zechariah 14.2. And I have to admit, I don't, I don't really emotionally like what uh, Zechariah and other verses have to say. Uh, and also the one we just read in Joel. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half of the city shall go forth into cap captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in the day upon the Mount of Olives. And I'm submitting to you that this is after judgment. Then he comes... I mean, how else do you reconcile what city is taken in verse 2? All nations around about Jerusalem and the city taken. Which city? You know, as much as I don't emotionally want to identify with that, I have to concur that the Jews will be scattered to a certain degree once again. In the back of our minds we say, enough Lord, Holocaust, all of these things. But we have a unbelieving uh, remnant, very much, uh, not remnant, that's the wrong word, an unbelieving contingency, referring to the two-thirds, secular, you know, homosexual marriage, godless in many ways, just like the heathen, that unfortunately have to be dealt with. Now let's keep reading. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and toward the west. And there shall be a great valley, and half of the mountain shall, shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Yea, ye shall flee, like as you fled uh, before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. They are with him. I mean, if you want to even uh, look at Isaiah 63, which is a very pow powerful verse, who is Messiah coming with? 
Isaiah 63.1 says this, who is this, that, who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? So he has been in battle as he is moving towards. Uh, this is this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save, traveling with his strength. Again, we have to get our mind, minds around this multitudinous aspect. And what's his purpose? To redeem Israel. From what? All the nations gathered round about. This Gogian host. Not the Arabs round about. This Gogian host. Something much more powerful and devastating as the prophets have called for. Something with the capability to distress Israel to such a degree that there is no hope to save herself. Alright, you can also read in Zephaniah 3.8. Uh, but for time, uh, I'll just have you jot that down. The saints are to take the kingdom from the final beast in Daniel 7. Therefore, they have to have been already resurrected and judged. Quote, but the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. So these are the movements. And again, you know, whether... Let's see... My bearings. You know, Sinai down here, they're moving up, or I think there's one more possible there. But, uh, anyways, the southern region, then up to this. No, I'm sorry, I'm way too far down. Whether it's here or here, here is the place where Christ returns, judgment occurs, and then this movement up to redeem Israel from this Gogian host. The scriptures quoted in Habakkuk 3 refer to the ultimate. Uh, or the warfare in the lands south of Jerusalem. In the great conflict with the nations assembled at Jerusalem, these further, uh, three further scriptures state that the saints are the source of the divine power that subdues the enemy. Zechariah 14 tells us that when Yahweh goes forth to fight against those nations at Jerusalem, quote, Yahweh, my God, shall come and all the saints with thee. As we saw in verse 5 from Zechariah 14. These are not the literal angels of heaven, but Yahweh's holy ones who are the seed of Abraham from Exodus 3.15. The Yahweh name. And what is Yahweh the name? What does it really mean when you break it down? It has a plural aspect to it, does it not? The Yahweh name is now manifested in the earth, the multitudinous Christ. And the saints are part of the I will be. Joel also sees them as the mighty ones and the angel of his power, in, uh, the angels of his power in 2 Thessalonians 1.7. Coming down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, it says, quote, Assemble yourselves and come all ye heathen and gather yourselves round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Yahweh. And Isaiah sees a symbolic figure called the name of Yahweh. A symbolic figure called the name of Yahweh. Coming from afar at the crisis of the latter-day Assyrian. Coming against Jerusalem in Isaiah 30. These scriptures require that the saints have been raised to power They've been resurrected and judged righteous before the deliverance of Jerusalem. The name of Yahweh is emphatically God manifestation. It is encompassed in the cherubic or cherubic vision of Ezekiel 1, 12 through 13. And let's just look at that quickly. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. And they went everyone straight forward. Whither the Spirit was to go, they went. And they turned not when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire. Well, that sounds a lot like the pestilence and the burning feet of fire in Habakkuk, does it not? And like the appearance of lamps, this lightning, this brightness, it went up and down among the living creatures and the fire was bright and out of the fire went forth lightning. When we think of Thessalonians, it says, in the brightness of His coming. And again, that phrase, then, when every, then went everyone straight forward, whither the Spirit was to go, they went. Their appearance was like burning coals of fire and the appearance of lamps. So, brothers and sisters, I believe it is this key juncture that we have to make a choice. We have to make a diligent effort to search out the matter, which is the honor of kings, discover the prophetic truth of these critical events, Because these two views and their variations, they don't stand compatible. You have to either say, 
Christ returns from Sinai, judgment, a resurrected host, the march of the rainbowed angel, the multitudinous Christ, to redeem Israel from not the Arabs roundabout, but these, this Gogian host. Or you say that he comes alone with literal angels to Jerusalem, and then judgment happens later. Then the peace and safety is a result of Christ in the land, which entices God. Now the next area that uh, it will probably have to be tomorrow, is that I want to get into, is how can Christ have redeemed Israel, be in the land with the saints, and they're still trespassing against the Almighty? How is that possible? Two other views, uh, or these two views, don't stand compatible. So we need to do our homework and make a decision. To be very clear, I am promoting the argument that the Christ and the saints march from Sinai after judgment. The instant this mindset is tolerated, well, let me back up. It's not acceptable to simply render the conclusion that it doesn't matter. This is exactly what I do not want you to do, is come up to issues like this and say, I'm not going to go any further. It's the same with the overall uh, stepping up to prophecy. So many different views, I'm not going to go any further. In fact, I'm going to go backwards and I'm just going to concentrate on the things I can get my hands around, which are the commandments of Christ, you know, the one pillar of, of the gospel, and that's what I'm going to leave it at. It's not acceptable, especially for our young people. How do you give them hope, drive, energy, tenacity to overcome today without that vision? The instant this mindset is tolerated, the precedent is set, and then further difficult prophetic studies begin to succumb to the same surrender. Once this happens, faith comes to a standstill, in my opinion, and we then begin to rely more and more heavily or solely upon the moral teachings of the Bible, which are absolutely correct and essential. We focus strictly on the emotional, and we lose our balance necessary for a complete, mature faith. So these are some of the comparisons in print. So Christ returns to Jerusalem with literal angels. You can look at Matthew 24 and also Matthew 25. And in dramatic fashion of the world, he comes with the clouds. They're literal. Before him are gathered the nations, uh, which we would say, or the, or the argument is um, judgment here. Judgment happens at Jerusalem instead of Sinai. The mourning tribes, uh, which are the Jews, redeemed from the Arabs round about. The Arabs then are the facilitator that forces the Jews to cry to Yahweh. So you have to put all that into your mind and say, does that square? The peace and safety is facilitated by Christ, which then entices God to, God to come down. Yet, as it says in Ezekiel 39, 22-26, they still trespass against the Almighty. Or, Christ returns as a thief. Revelation 16, 15. Some of the household will be caught unawares and in shame, their garments stained. Judgment in Sinai. As we look at Psalm 68, 17, Deuteronomy. You can look at Habakkuk as well. The march of the rainbowed angel, this multitudinous man. The honor of the saints to bind the kings with fetters of iron, Psalms 149. The saints are with Christ when they arrive in Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14.5. All nations gathered against Israel, not just the Arabs. And again, as I have said, it's going to take a destructive force bigger than Syria and the Palestinians. Because Egypt is a victim of God's antagonism. Jordan, and I've said this a couple times, but let's just validate it. Look to Isaiah 16. You know, again, I'm not really thrilled by the fact that the Jews may have to be scattered or two-thirds of them cut off, and however you uh, summarize that. But here's what's speaking to um, Moab and Ammon, which is latter-day Jordan. Verse 2, For it shall be that as a wandering bird cast out of the nest, so the daughters of Moab shall be at the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make thy shadow as the night in the midst of the noonday. Hide the outcast, bewray them not, or bewray him, bewray not him that wandereth. Remember, is a bird that's cast out of a nest? This is an outcast, bewray not him that wandereth. Let mine outcast dwell with thee, Moab. Be thou a covert to them from the face of the spoiler. Who's the spoiler? It's Gog. For the, extor uh, the extortioner is at an end. The spoiler ceaseth. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. And in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David. David. 
Now, when you look at the words there, outcast, kicked out of the nest, from the face of the spoiler, let him that wandereth dwell with thee, give him covert for a temporary time. This is the scattering of Israel by God into Jordan for a temporary time. Flip over to Isaiah 19. We also have a scattering of Israel into Egypt and a punishment of Egypt by God. Verse 4, And the Egyptians will I give over into the hand of a cruel Lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them, saith the Lord of hosts. And if you skip over to uh, 19, in that, in that day there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a Savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. I mean, as another study, you can look at uh, Assyria and Egypt. As it says in the verse um, 24, In that day Israel shall be a third with Egypt and Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. In verse 25, whom the Lord of hosts shall say, Blessed be Egypt my people, Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel mine inheritance. Well, that seems pretty strange. The saints are to take the kingdom in Daniel 7, not literal angels. And then my question that I would ask you to study, what about God manifestation as talked about in Joel, Isaiah 30, and the cherubim aspect in Ezekiel? This whole multitudinous Christ, God manifestation. So if we trust the scriptures and the events happening before our eyes, we see the young lions in the region, and the fact uh, that renders the Arab nations as the sole aggressors against uh, Israel really not a likely possibility at this time. And in spite of the ongoing pricking briars of the Palestinian uprising, we are beginning to see the seeds of a temporary peace in the region. Remember, coerced, leveraged, but a uh, cessation of conflict to a certain degree. Now, Israel has demonstrated in several wars, namely the 1967 war uh, in the decimation of Egyptian tanks coming across the Sinai, that air superiority rules supreme if you're trying to amass your troops out across an open desert. Now, case in point, is just the latest war that we've had in Iraq. Did the Iraqis stand and fight? Absolutely not. Could they fight? Absolutely not. They don't have an air force. You're going to put your tanks and your missile launchers and your troops out in the desert? We were hoping for that type of turkey shoot, a repeat of the Gulf War I, if you remember that highway, that they just lit it up because they were sitting ducks. So what did they do? They dropped their soldiers', soldiers uniforms and they assimilated right back into the population and you have guerrilla warfare. That's the only way that they could level the playing field to a certain degree. So um, if Syria wants to bring her troops across the Golan, if Egypt wants to suddenly change her tune and come across the deserts uh, of the Sinai in the open, uh, frankly, the U.S. and the Israeli Air Force would, would almost... You know, I know the pilots would just be flat out eager to do that. First of all, the Air Force of uh, Israel is superior in terms of their talent and their ability, their planes, etc. Uh, you look at the U.S. there with all of their technology and their command and control centers from the air. Uh, they would love to eliminate uh, Arab militaries in just a matter of days because that's what it would be. So I'm begging the question, is... Syria, the Palestinians, are they going to be able to defeat Israel when you're looking at the strength of man's hand, nation to nation? I don't see it. Even with biological explosions, what is Israel to do? Surrender? No. You know, what's the mantra from the Holocaust? Never again. So what neighboring... Arab army with the American, British, and Israeli armies in the region is going to amass their army into the open plains, whether it's Egypt, which we know is going to be a victim of God, coming across the Sinai, or Syria coming across the Golan. Uh, you can add into all this high-tech stuff. Uh, I've heard Tommy Asbel tell me, uh, you know, Israel has a laser pointed right at Damascus, and they can pull the trigger at any time. I mean, you don't underestimate Israel and her technology. The Arabs aren't that intelligent. And that's why they have oil. That's the only thing that sustains their economies. But Israel, when you talk about science and agriculture and everything else, leaders of the world. 
The bottom line is that with present-day events as they stand, the Muslim Arabs do not possess the capability, either confederately or independently, to invade and overrun Israel on the scale called for by the prophets. Will, will there be Arab pylon? Absolutely. Israel with the young lions, with the recent death of Arafat, and all of these leaders, I guess, is it King Fahd that just died this week, the House of Saud in Saudi Arabia? Her, and this is the problem, see? Her self-reliance and dependence upon her own means to provide for her security is unfortunately the very attitude that will anger the Lord. Let's look at Ezekiel 39 because this is what I've been talking about and we'll have to conclude here. Let's look at uh, verse 23. And the, Ezekiel 39, verse 23. And the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. Because they trespassed against me, therefore have I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their enemies, so fell they all by the sword. This is the scattering of Israel by the Gogging invasion. And why has it happened? Because they trespassed against me. Now let's get clues to what this trespass was uh, and is currently. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions have I done unto them and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Now I will bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. After that they have borne their shame and all their trespasses, whereby they have trespassed against me when they dwelt safely in their land and none made them afraid. When I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them under their own land and have let, left none of them any more. And I believe there's... Uh, we'll look into these verses more tomorrow. But that's what I'm submitting to you is the crux of the trespass that is happening today. The other verse here, which we'll get tomorrow, is when they forgot me, and basically, it is summarized and paraphrasing, when you relied upon the strength of your own hand and forgot me, Yahweh, which gathered you out of the nations in 48, uh, in that process that we've been talking about earlier in the week, and have sustained you, but now you have relied upon your own ability and totally forgotten me. That's the trespass. And I would submit to you that Christ can't be the reason for the peace and safety while they're still forgetting the Almighty. So we'll stop there.